Want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily, then distribute it everywhere and even earn money. All in one place for free. It's called Spotify for Podcasters and here's how it works. Spotify for Podcasters lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or your computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating a podcast today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify and when you want to take conversations with your fans to the next level, Q&A and polls are the best way to get them talking. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. Ever since I discovered Spotify for Podcasters, I love engaging with my audience with the Q&A and the polls. And I also love the fact that I can upload my video podcast on Spotify because I know my audience love watching it sometimes when they're traveling on their commute. I highly recommend you give it a try and you can download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com forward slash podcasters to get started. But it wasn't until like later on in my teens, just before I went to med school, that I was actually taught how to make like actual recipes. I think it was when I went to med school, my mum basically sat me down and was like, you're gonna have to cook for yourself now. Uh, so you need to know like this general skill set." So I think it was drilled into me that not only is it important to like appreciate food and eat well, it's also a life skill that everyone should have to be able to cook for themselves. Just did I want to be able to give the sort of blessings of how to cook food that's going to be preventative in terms of the medicinal value to every sort of uh, person who comes into contact with a recipe. So how do you actually speak to yourself in the environment that is in your in your mind i think that's really really important and we that really doesn't get enough attention it's very external it's like okay this person is telling me about this food and that's bad for me actually you should be able to tolerate your external environment by looking up your internal environment so so hi Rufy, welcome to learn your mind (laughs) hey shivani lovely to meet you and uh, yeah, excited to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited to have you on and talk all about your journey. But I wanted to start with the beginning. So were you always interested in food? Yeah, so I think uh, growing up in a household where my mum was like a massive foodie, um, she always had like different things on the table. We'd always be watching like the Food Channel. We'd be eating a range of different cuisines. Like it, we've always been sort of obsessed with food. and. Um, but it wasn't until like later on in my teens, just before I went to med school, that I was actually taught how to make like actual recipes because mum was sort of like, you know, the matriarch in the kitchen and the household uh, generally, but like especially the kitchen. So, yeah, she sort of um, took control of everything. But that was sort of where I got my creative uh, start from, I guess. And how did you become interested in that? Because I think a lot of people watching and listening to this will be thinking, yeah, my mum is the one that cooks all the time or makes all the recipes and almost if it's done for you and it's so nice, where does that interest kind of spark from? I think it was when I went to med school, my mum basically sat me down and was like, you're going to have to cook for yourself now. uh, So you need to know like this general skill set. So I think it was drilled into me that not only is it important to like appreciate food and eat well, it's also a life skill that everyone should have to be able to cook for themselves. And I think maybe even today, it's become less of a need considering we have food at the touch of a button. There's so much availability of food, particularly if you're living in an urbanized environment. Um, 
but I think it's still really important to get those fundamental principles of flavor building, of cooking from scratch. You know, I think it's very much ingrained in our DNA to be able to source and prepare food. Um, so yeah, that, that was sort of like why it was really important for me. And I guess I was lucky when I went to med school, um, I lived in a household with a whole bunch of foodies. Uh, and they're all they're all guys as well. So like you know, we'd have like barbecue cookups at the weekend. We would experiment with like spice blends. We would do all different types of cuisines. We're of like from various different backgrounds. One of the guys is Middle Eastern. Uh, one of the guys was English. Um, one of the guys uh, was another sort of uh, Indian Pakistani background. So yeah, and I was I was lucky in that respect as well that I had some sort of like peers who were also interested in this sort of element of, of cooking and the creative pursuit. So how did you move from being a full time doctor to then becoming a full time chef? Is that what is that what I would call you? Uh, I don't call myself a chef actually. A, a lot of people do, but I th like um, I call myself like a like a, a home cook, right? So. A chef is someone with a unique set of skills that can manage a kitchen, uh, can operate within the hierarchy of like um, uh, how a kitchen runs. You know, you have your sous chef, your pot wash, your waiting staff, your manager, your front of house, like all these different things. And you've got to like bang out covers anywhere between 50 covers a night to like hundreds of covers a night. So that sort of operational mindset is what I regard as like a chef. I'm like um, a recipe creator slash home cook. I'm someone who wants to get into the mindset of a novice cook who just wants to A, eat delicious, flavorful food that like excites them as food should do, and B, can cook on a budget and healthy food that we know is going to be nourishing them on a day-to-day -day basis. So someone who doesn't have like the set of skills that you would from like maybe an amateur cook or someone who's like truly interested. I want to be able to give the sort of blessings of how to cook food that's going to be preventative in terms of the medicinal value to every sort of uh, person who comes into contact with a recipe. So yeah, that that's sort of how I, I would regard myself. And to answer your question, so long story short, I got ill when I was a junior doctor. I used to suffer from a heart condition called atrial fibrillation, that kind of led me down and to do a deep dive into nutritional medicine and how, A, why, you know, why was this happening, first of all? There wasn't uh, ever a diagnosis as to what the, the triggers were. Um, but also, B, like, uh, I was able to revert it with the diet and lifestyle approach, something that I wasn't taught at med school. And so that led me to, you know, do a big deep dive into um, what evidence base there was there. And actually in doing that and having more conversations with patients, I realized there was a real need to teach people the basics and the principles of cooking, but also uh, how we can sort of upskill everyone so they can protect their health and prevent the sort of tidal wave of lifestyle related illnesses that uh, plague multiple healthcare systems across the world. So that's sort of the uh, the way in which I fell into this uh, industry. And then as most people do, started on social media and, uh, and that, that was it. It's interesting you said you did a deep dive into nutritional health because I think with the overload of information that's out there, a lot of people feel like they're doing a deep dive every day. But there's so many different diets, diets and lifestyles and ways of living. So you know you have paleo, you have vegan, you have keto. How do you know which is right for you and your body? 
I think um, there are some fundamental principles that would apply to uh, all those different diets, actually. So it's mainly unprocessed food. You're cutting out the junk. Uh, it's largely vegetables. Even the paleo folks would, um, w would concede that a lot of their diet is made up by vegetables with the inclusion of some good quality meats. Um, you're getting more fiber than the average diet you're having a rich variety of all those different ingredients. So as much as the media and purveyors of those particular diets like to point out the differences, I think actually a lot of similarities exist. And whenever you compare it to the standard Western diet, which is pretty poor in all those things that I, I um, j just mentioned, um, you're obviously going to have uh, beneficial effects, right? Um, so I think the first step is, is like getting people to the very basics. And I, I would, I would think that 80% of the issues that are attributed to poor diet and lifestyle would be able to be fixed by making those, those changes. Um, and there it comes, becomes like more of a personalization issue. Okay. If you're intolerant to certain grains, if you don't fare well, with particular types of greens, because the oxalate level Maybe there is something uh, in your genomic history that would make you better uh, functioning on high quality fats than other people. You know, those sort of differences, I think, can only really be fine tuned by investigations. And I think we're learning a lot more about how we can do that with the use of metabolomics, um, uh, looking at uh, our microbiota, using stool testing, as well as uh, genomics as well. So simple genomic tests that can give us some sense of like what diets might be useful for you and then also intuition as well like how you feel after eating certain things um there was a really wonderful study just looking at weight that i always talk about it's called the a to z study they basically put people in these various diets and kept them on the their chosen diet for 12 months and the people that fed the best and the main measure they were looking at which weight was weight loss um were all the diets as long as they were able to stick with it. And so people who are most aligned to the diet that suited their lifestyle, their convenience, their, their taste, those fared better on those diets. So it doesn't really matter about the diet. It matters about how you can consistently eat that way every day, which sort of spills over into what the main problem I find. It's, it's not the type of diet that people... Uh, need to focus on that is specific to the unique needs. It's actually consistency. And consi if you think about like uh, my own diet or your own diet or anyone listening to this over the last week, have you been consistently eating well? Most people can't really say that they have. I mean, Jubilee celebrations this week. I know I'm going to be eating like loads of cake and quiche and stuff on Friday. A whole bunch of other people would have had like big weekends. You know, you, we, we ebb and flow just because that's our environment. And sometimes, you know, you go to work and you can't find what's something, that, something that's healthy for you. You know, we have all these issues. And I think that's the issue that we need to try and tackle rather than the personalization element. I think that's almost like the cherry on top. I completely agree. And I think with all these different diets and all of this information to say that you should restrict this and you should keep this you don't know what's good for your body but then you also become very fearful of foods so you know i know a lot of people that are scared to eat fruit a lot of people that are worried about eating anything that has any source of fat in it um because we've been we've been told that our whole lives right and it's all almost about reprogramming that how do you change that fearness around food because 
I think it's not only fearless, it's also you have a lot of guilt. So like you said, this weekend you'll be eating a lot of quiche, a lot of cake. When you know you're then being inconsistent and you know that it doesn't align to what your body needs, how do you eat and not have this association of guilt attached to it? Yeah, it's an interesting question because I think particularly over the pandemic, we've seen a lot more people reaching out for help um, with eating related disorders. And I think it exists on a spectrum where you get some information about foods that leads to guilt and that can spiral into shame. And if you go further down that spiral of shame, it can really lead to some negative self thoughts that can manifest in the most extreme uh, um, situations of uh, eating disorders, uh, self-harm, and that's all sort of mixed into the umbrella uh, where the root cause, I think, really comes down to the the little voice in your head um, and how much you, you want to listen to it. Because I think we're all going to have thoughts of a nation and the object isn't really to rid ourselves of those, it's to, it's to check ourselves. So instead of me trying to rid myself of the thought that uh, okay, this weekend, I'm going to need to exercise pretty hard because I'm going to be going ham on the food and stuff this week. For for some people, that's like completely fine. It's not going to lead them to this thought process of, okay, every time I eat, I need to make sure it's exactly calorie balanced. And the only way I can do that is if I exercise after every single meal. But for some people, you know, it, it, it can, and that's the, the wrong sort of relationship to have with your food. So it really comes down to the individual. So broadly speaking, without going to specifics, is education around actually what happens when you consume food. And B, I think it really comes down to uh, something that is a lot more upstream in terms of where that problem is actually potentially coming from. It's that ne negative self-talk, you know, like how... Do you actually speak to yourself in the environment that is in your in your mind? I think that's really, really important. And we that really doesn't get enough attention. It's very external. It's like, okay, this person is telling me about this food and that's bad for me. Actually, you should be able to tolerate your external environment by looking up your internal environment. So um, that those are my, my sort of broad level thoughts on that. It, it gets a lot deeper, I guess, in terms of negative self-talk. Yeah, and I think so many of us don't recognise that we're saying those things to ourselves. So I've heard so many people say, I've, I've even said it in the past before, you know, if I eat Domino's, I have to go to the gym the next day and I have to burn X amount of calories and I have to work out this hard. And I think so many of us do it so subconsciously and it's only recently that I've noticed that that's a really toxic way to think because eating one, I don't know, one pizza, maybe if I ate it every weekend, would have an effect on my body. But having it once in a while isn't going to have an effect on my body, so I don't need to work out like a lunatic and you know I think often some people are like I know I, I know I don't need to but I just feel like I have to and one of the things that I saw that yeah. you spoke about was the nocebo effect am I saying it right yeah yeah I found that really interesting can you explain a little bit more about that yeah yeah and just to touch on that the last point I think which I think is really important is some people can have that relationship with food where they're like oh, okay I gotta I gotta work out the gym man I've had a, like a big week and that's okay for them. And I think you've got to figure out what's okay for you such that it doesn't lead to a net negative thought process when it comes to food. You know, I, I talk about this guy that I saw in clinic um, probably about a year ago. He was like, yeah, you know, I've had a bit of junk food. I need to really clean up my diet. And anyone that's been in the health and wellness industry for long enough knows that there's certain words 
you tend to not be able to say anymore. And one of them is clean, like clean eating, this whole clean sort of um, talk that led to a lot of toxic toxicity. But what I realized in that moment is for that person, the word clean doesn't have as many negative connotations for him. And that's okay because he's okay with that. As long as, you know, it doesn't spar into anything else, that's, that's fine. So it really depends on, on the type of person uh, you are and, and whether that sort of negative self-speak self is actually reinforcing something that's bad or something that could actually help you s stick to, you know, the, the straight note. Anyway, so that, that was just to round off that point. Um, so the no SIBO effect. So I think most people have heard of the placebo effect, which is where you are given an inert substance that leads to a positive outcome, whether that be physiological, whether it be psychological, I think there's a, a, a lot intertwined in that. Um, the nocebo is essentially the opposite of that. So where I say this muffin that I'm giving you is going to give you uh, bloating or it's going to give you the runs or it's going to constipate you. And I've implanted that message into your mind such that you will have that uh, that um, uh, direct effect and, and an actual response to it, even if there was nothing in the muffin to suggest any of that uh, outcome. And so that, that's a very sort of primitive example of the nocebo effect. And I think we do this inadvertently with food. So if I uh, have given you the impression that gluten is bad for you and I give you a food with all those preconceptions about gluten causing bloating or skin issues or brain fog and all the rest of it, you may have that um, reaction to it. Um, and I, I, I think, you know, with all the information that we have out there and how much people might latch on to, um, it's really important that we're aware of this, this nocebo effect. Because I think the, the psychological state in which we eat, again, hasn't really been given that much attention. And I think it's really, really important. So one of the things that I try to do um, with food is like, A, take a moment, slow down before I eat. Uh, make sure I'm not rushing it and make sure I sort of appreciate where this where this food has come from, like the watercress in the UK or the asparagus that's in season or the fiber that's going to be building up my micros, all these different things. I try and like, as silly as it sounds, I try and attach as much positive um, energy and posit positive uh, uh, knowledge to, to what I'm consuming because I know that's going to have a desired positive effect. So I'd rather have the placebo than the than the nocebo it's funny you say that because i think that's very much linked to what we were saying before around this like fear of foods so i tested this with one of my friends and they came around and um they asked for a coffee so i said oh sorry i've only got cow's milk and they were like oh that's fine but you know my stomach always hurts and um, i think i'm allergic to it and i think i'm lactose intolerant and mm. i was like okay and they were like but i'll just have it because it's fine like it's only once in a while and then for the rest of the day, they're like, my tummy hurts. It was definitely the cow's milk. You know, I knew I was allergic to it. And then I was like, you know, it was oat milk. And they were like, what? And I was like, you, uh, I think often we just put things into our minds, things that we read online, things that we see in the media and say, I'm definitely allergic to it. Or, you know, it's definitely not good for me. And it, it definitely is so bad for you. So I, I, my body just can't hack it. And I know that. And what I mean by that as well is people say that often about le eating late at night. I think for so many years, we were told that you can't eat late at night because it makes you gain weight or it makes you put on whatever or it makes you feel bloated or all of, all of these things. And whilst to some extent that could be true to some people, I think these generalist statements, people apply themselves to and then just say it affects them in that way. 
And so I, when I heard about you talking about that, I thought it was so powerful because I think so many of us do it subconsciously due to the things that we see online. Mm, yeah, yeah. I, it's, it's, a really, it's a really cool experiment you did. Um, but it's, it's also something I think we do naturally to ourselves um, all day long and we don't really think about it. Um, we do, you know, some people might see it in a, in a positive way, like if they're eating Rivita crackers all day long or, you know, um, salads and they feel that's good for them and stuff. It, 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 it can, yeah, it, it can be, uh, reinforcing and motivating for people, but in a lot of cases, um, given the media cycles are usually latched onto negative, uh, headlines, uh, it's quite easy to fall into that trap. Um, and don't get me wrong, there, there are a lot of people with intolerances out there um, who definitely need uh, help and alternatives and all the rest of it. Um, but that's not the majority. And unfortunately, a lot more people feel that they have issues with food when it's actually more rooted in the way we approach it rather than the food itself. Absolutely. And I think it's because food is so emotive for us you know so, so many of us eat yeah. when we're happy I actually when I'm sad can't eat I can only eat if I'm feeling happy so if I'm stressed or if I'm worried or if I'm upset I don't feel like I want to eat anything and one of my next questions to you is you know so many people feel like they need to break out of that habit of emotional eating what are some of your tips on how people break out of them um I think uh, first of all it comes down to um the information that you're privy to. So I'm a big believer in curating your digital environment. That's why I actively tell people to unfollow me in a lot of cases. Like we make a point at least once a month to remind people that they have a choice to follow and unfollow accounts that serve them or or, or at least recognize which accounts are doing them a disservice. Um, you know, I, I've unfollowed a whole bunch of toxic accounts that I don't feel are good for my mental health. In fact, my feed is mainly like good food, uh, good mood, uh, good mood movement. I think it's called spread love movement, um, upworthy, like things that basically just like add positive, uh, messages to my mind. Cause you switch over to Twitter and it's the exact opposite. So I think, uh, finding, um, uh, finding information that suits you is is best um eating intuitively so ensuring that you're slowing down and recognizing what it took for the food to get to your plate and actually how grateful and privileged we all are to have food in front of us i think the cost of living crisis is sort of making everyone aware of that these days um and i think uh, uh also sort of if you recognizing if there is a problem that is bigger than the one that you can solve yourself super important so reaching out for help you know, GPs are becoming a lot more um, uh, open-minded and uh, responsive and receptive to the ideas around uh, eating disorders, as well as providing people with the uh, appropriate avenues um, for treatment if required, um, because it is becoming an issue, um, the, the sort of uh, real sort of spectrum of uh, emotional eating that can lead, lend itself to eating disorders. So I think that's that's super important. And also like, you know, checking your mindset in terms of like your internal voice, because if you fix sort of um, your alignment with, with happiness and the, the, um, the way in which you consume food and, and talk about yourself, um, I think it, that's probably going to be 
really, really important when it comes to um, the, the net effect on emotional eating. You talk a lot about eating as a way for healing your body. Tell mm. me a little bit more about that. How can we heal our bodies with the power of nutrition? Uh, so a, a number of ways. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, 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 yeah, yeah. I'll give you sort of, no, it's all right. Uh, I'll give you sort of the, the broader um, perspective. I mean, the, the, the concept of food as medicine is not, is not really new. Um, what, what's your background? Are, are, you, are you Indian or? I'm Indian, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. So, you know, you, you're probably not a stranger to the concept of, of uh, food as medicine. It's very much entrained and uh, coupled to Ayurveda and sort of uh, what our parents and grandparents have been telling us for years. Um, you know, the impact of, of spices, uh, the importance of the gut as the root to all health and ill health. Um, as well as uh, the importance of lifestyle that supports everything else as well. So, you know, food is one of those foundations that I think everyone needs to recognize as a critical um, preventative role in medicine. And the way I like to sort of space it out is food uh, can be seen as preventative medicine, supportive medicine, and as the medicine in the minority of cases. So preventative medicine, you know, there's swaths of, uh, studies that demonstrate when you eat a more plant-based diet, when you have a lot more fiber in your diet, when you have more fruits and vegetables in your diet, when you have adequate amounts of nutrients that come from nuts and seeds and beans, and you're getting enough protein and you're getting enough fiber that support your gut microbes, you have a massive reduction in your risk and propensity towards cardiovascular disease, metabolic disease, and neurodegenerative disease, all the conditions of our time that we know are related to our, our lifestyles and, and um, uh, poor eating habits. So there's, there's like a huge sort of uh, evidence base around how we can see food as preventive medicine. It can also be used in a supportive manner. So whether you're having surgery and you're recovering or uh, even such things as uh, chemotherapy in a supportive manner, we know that there is some research now that people with better diets, people with uh, uh, more fruits and vegetables, people with better gut health, can potentially respond better to certain treatments. So there is a, a huge role in a complementary manner for food as well. Uh, and in the minority of cases, it can be the treatment. Um, the, the one that uh, I think a lot more medics have come around to the idea of is the um, uh, quite restrictive ketogenic diet when it comes to treatment refractory uh, epilepsy in pediatrics. In fact, that's the first line therapy um, in certain hospitals in America. Uh, and I believe in the UK as well. Um, we did a whole podcast episode on, on ketogenic diets. And so there, there, is, there are a multitude of different ways in which we can use food in a medicinal manner. And I think it's becoming a lot more sort of commonplace to talk about it. When I started, it was not really in the norm, you know, to talk about food as medicine. Um, but I think now we're really recognizing the importance of it and how we can do it. And actually, you know, it's one of the reasons why I um, I started my app, um, the sort of Headspace for Healthy Eating, because getting to the crux of the problem is actually about consistently eating well. Um, and if we can provide a default digital environment where every choice you make is a healthy one that is actually supporting your well-being and supporting your gut, supporting all the different mechanisms that improve 
um, uh, the way your body functions, like that, that's really what you should be aiming for. And it's easier to curate your digital environment than it is to curate your physical environment. Although the two are becoming quite intertwined with delivery systems, logistics, online supermarkets and all the rest of it. So, yeah. Now, I recently recorded a podcast with the founders of Dirty. I don't know if you've heard of them, but they've created a brand around the power of mushrooms and how they can actually heal your body. And they were telling me that the gut is like the second brain. Um, and one of the things that really stood out to me was they were saying that mushrooms are used for medicinal purposes. You know, they're, they're the only ingredient within pills that don't give you the side effects. Do you feel like we still need parts of the pharmaceutical industry to help heal us or we can do that totally through food? Oh, I think we definitely need the pharmaceutical industry um, for for um, treatment, for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. So, I mean, you know, as a, as a doctor that's uh, been working in the healthcare system for nearly 15 years, um, I think I've got a deep appreciation for the need for uh, treatments um, as blunt as they are. So like antibiotics, for example, is a blunt tool to treat uh, bacteria. And we know that, that the way we use antibiotics needs to change because of antimicrobial resistance. Um, the utility of uh, vaccines and um, antiviral treatments, I think, has been demonstrated over the last couple of years in particular. But looking back even further, when we uh, take for granted all the things like measles, mumps, rubella, um, a whole bunch of conditions that we don't see anymore. I remember when I was chatting to some of the nurses that are a little bit older than me, they used to see uh, uh, um, uh, influenza uh, uh, cases, epiglottitis with kids coming in, they can't breathe, you have to give them steroids. It was scary, scary scenarios. I've never seen that because I've grown up in an era where all the kids get HIV vaccinations. So, it, you know, it's, it's a really, really important feature of medicine that I don't think should ever go away. However, when it comes to the areas where lifestyle is the root cause of what we're seeing, uh, yes, I believe that the pharmaceuticals that we use to stabilize blood sugar or um, even uh, uh, reduce uh, cholesterol um, uh, to uh, thin the blood, all, all, all these sort of elements that we use that are important at a late stage can be prevented and our use of those can be massively dropped if we can focus on the root cause issues which are lifestyle so there's definitely like a push and pull between it but i definitely think the two go hand in hand rather than a, an either or absolutely i don't think there is an either or because there are times in which you do are you are too late in a certain area and you do need that medicine and for example i think there's so many cases in which people just think, okay, well, if I eat healthy, I'll never incur any problem. And I think that's also not true as well, because there are different factors to what leads you to different conditions. So eating healthy is really important and it can be a way to prevent a lot of diseases, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're immune from everything, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I know this was really short um, and hopefully one day we can record in person in a studio and deep dive into these issues and take a longer look at your app and how you're helping so many people around the world. But I really appreciate you coming on um, and taking the time this morning. I appreciate it. My pleasure, Shivani, and, uh, and good luck with uh, it all. And uh, yeah, thanks for, thanks for hanging out this morning. Thank you. Hey everyone, thank you so much for listening to this podcast. 
wherever you're listening or watching. If you could press the like, follow and subscribe button, it would mean the world to me.